Hello and welcome to CIO Perspectives. I'm Sid All, the CIO of Private Client Endowments and Foundations here at Brown Advisory. And I'm joined as always by my co-host, Erica Padgel, our CIO of Sustainable Investing. Today, we're excited to have as our guest, David Schuster, the Portfolio Manager of Brown Advisory's Small Cap Fundamental Value Strategy. He joined us in 2008, and one of his first projects was to capitalize on the opportunities presented by the great financial crisis, including areas like financial stocks. And prior to Brown Advisory, he was a Managing Director in Mergers and Acquisitions at Lazard and Citi. So lots to talk about today with David. We plan to touch on a few of the major forces moving markets, including the now-resolved debt ceiling standoff, the narrow stock market leadership this year, the continued struggles of small banks, and the commercial real estate market, as well as the eerily quiet private markets. With the debt ceiling, lawmakers appear to have mostly kicked the can down the road to January 2025, with quite modest limitations on spending increases, setting up perhaps another standoff in 18 months' time. It was a welcome outcome for the markets, and they barely blinked. In fact, the S&P 500 is now up 20% from its October lows, and the headline is that we're in a new bull market. Concentration and narrow leadership in the stock market is back at multi-decade highs, as the market cap-weighted S&P 500 is up 12% this year, and the equal-weighted index is up just 2 Some 85% of the S&P's return this year can be accounted for by just 10 stocks, and 70% of stocks are underperforming the market. Big tech stocks are dominating once again, as investors go wild over the promise of AI. Meanwhile, the delinquency rates of commercial real estate loans have reached five-year highs, and office delinquencies have nearly doubled in the past six months. Small bank stocks have seen a small bounce from their lows, but remain amongst the worst performers of the year. So, Erica, there's a lot going on right now. What's most on your mind since we last spoke? Great. Thanks, Sid. I think first and foremost, we have to remember that what happens in the economy does not always dictate the direction of the markets. And you mentioned some of this, but there's a lot of juxtaposition right now. We're approaching the end of a hiking cycle, but we're nearing the beginning of a rate cutting cycle. We have an inverted yield curve, very narrow market leadership, a to be or not to be recession. Debt servicing costs are rising. We're seeing declining availability of credit declining leading economic indicators. And there's also a mixed level of demand across sectors. So right now there's a high demand for tech, which you mentioned, but there's low demand and outlook concerns in sectors like energy and materials. You mentioned that we've absorbed a lot of shocks this year. We can check two of those off the list, the debt ceiling debate. We so far do not have a global contagion after the Silicon Valley bank fallout. And despite all this, global markets continue to climb this wall of worry. You know, I saw this cartoon over the weekend, and I'll paraphrase it, and I think it summed it up pretty well. You know, there's days that the market's bearish. There's days the market's bullish. And these days, the market just does not make sense. And, you know, as you mentioned, we're technically, I guess, in this bull market. Five stocks led the decline of 18% in the S&P 500 last year, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Tesla. That clipped about $4 trillion in equity market capitalization last year, only to reverse course this year. What's startling is the tech performance is two and a half times that of the S&P 500. And the disparity of returns in growth versus value across large cap and small cap is very, very wide. 21 points in large cap, 10 points in small cap. I'm really looking forward to David's thoughts on all this. And then, you know, I'll just also highlight one component that we've talked about a lot over the past couple of years is there's still a lot of cash. And the yield environment today is making that consumer cash very sticky. So 
Last year, money market funds, $5 trillion. They're roughly $5.6 trillion. We've got the Treasury about to inject about a trillion of T-bills in order to drive up short-term yields. And short-term bond yields you know, haven't been this high in more than 15 years. So the current environment right now makes for a recipe of volatility. There's still a wide range of potential outcomes. But you know the market's hopeful that we're nearing the end of high inflation and high rates, and that sentiment will change soon. It just seems a little bit early to declare this. Sid, what do you think it will take to move the market higher from here? Well, I'll be the first to say I've been as surprised as anybody at the strength of the market this year, given all the things you talked about, you know, banking crisis, we've hiked rates so much in such a short period of time. We were debating this the other day. You know, there's never been a time where leading economic indicators were as negative as they are today for as long as they have been without a recession. So the question we posed our research team was, well, what would make it so? You know, what would make this time different? And I think the best explanation would be that the starting point was so different. Potentially, the starting point of excess savings, having two and a half trillion of excess savings, which we've been spending down, and we believe we're close to the end of that, especially for the lower income quartiles. But the excess savings was so high. Take, for instance, PMIs in services. The readings on that index were so high, you know, a year, 18 months ago, that the change to today is pretty dramatically negative, but the overall level is still kind of hovering around modestly positive. So is it possible that we were at such a strong starting point that we're actually going to skirt through this with the soft landing? I think that's what the markets are dealing with today is, you know, could we actually have threaded the needle here? I still find that unlikely given how much we've hiked rates, tightened credit standards, what the banks are likely to be doing coming out of the Silicon Valley Bank episode. But it's possible. And I think that's not a bet that we want to make a big bet on whether or not, you know, yes or no to inflation. I think we position ourselves somewhat conservatively with the expectation things could turn sour economically. But more so, I think what we're doing is kind of responding to better yield and return opportunities in fixed income markets. And then looking within equities at a market that is pretty lopsided. Right? I mean, you take the biggest seven stocks out of the S&P 500 and suddenly the S&P isn't trading at 18 times forward earnings, it's trading at 15 times forward earnings. And I'm sure David will talk about today some of the valuations he's seeing in small cap value land, but it'll look a lot more attractive than that. So you know, what takes us higher? I think it is a soft landing and muted inflation. And I guess only time will tell if we get there. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we've talked a lot about and looked at earnings revisions over the past couple of years. And if you look at 2023 earnings estimates peak to trough, the S&P has had revisions of about 7 to 8%, but small cap is down about 25% on a peak to trough basis for earnings revisions. And I love that you just brought this up. If you look at the equal weight index versus the S&P core index, that valuation dispersion is pretty wide, and it's actually relatively cheap outside of the biggest stocks. And we were in a meeting once lately because there's so much focus on multiples, but it was said in that meeting when the cost of capital is high and rising, multiples need to move lower. And I think that's centralized certainly in private equity and probably in some areas of the market. But there's a lot of the market right now that hasn't participated in this multiple expansion. Yeah, there's definitely a huge swath of companies that are not feeling the love, although I will say it's a pretty decidedly 
American issue, what's going on in markets right now. It's interesting if you look at the equal weighted performance versus the market cap weighted performance in Europe and emerging markets and elsewhere. It is the dominance of US tech right now that is making this so stark in the US. And I think under the surface, we have been the first major economy to really aggressively hike rates, really tighten policy. And so it's probably not surprising that we're the first seeing a little bit more of a kind of broad weakness in the market. Maybe this is a good time to bring David in. David, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Great. Thank you both for having me today. Maybe we can jump into the conversation here. I love thinking back to when you joined the firm and one of your first goals was to seek out opportunities during a time of great market stress. I know you love investing during times of forced selling. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that experience and what is similar or different today, probably not in the moment right now, looking very similar to 2008, a lot of big differences. But I know we've talked about potentially the mini banking crisis that we've had here presenting some interesting opportunities down the road. So first off, when I think back to that time period, you know, I think there's lots of similarities between that time period and today in the sense that just recently, as you pointed out, we've had three or four, depending on how you count, major institutions fail. That's in a very short period of time. That's nearly half a trillion dollars of assets that are moving hands. That's sort of effectively liquidity that's kind of coming out of the system. You know, in terms of lending standards and things like that, you get the sense that we're maybe not at the same level. Certainly nothing that looked like 08, but certainly, you know, banks and lending institutions a little bit over their skis in terms of, you know, loan to values and so forth. I think the big difference between then and now really is honestly just the transmission mechanism of derivatives. I mean, if you really think about what mushroomed the losses kind of in the 08 time period, you know, whether it be into AIG or back and forth between the investment banks, I think you just had sort of this massive loss of confidence and a lot of the uh, losses being transmitted back and forth between institutions in, in terms of the derivatives. I think one other big similarity, though, is just sort of the dichotomy between the different markets. I've been fortunate of sort of in my career to have worked in lots of different markets. Obviously, got to sort of see the euphoria, you know, in M&A markets, especially in the financial services space, but also had the chance to sort of see some of the, you know, restructuring and work both on the equity side and the fixed income side. And I think that's the biggest conundrum that I'm sort of looking at today, which is sort of this, okay, do you have a fixed income market that seems to be telling us one thing and an equity market tells us something else? As that sort of sorts its way through, I'm not a financial prognosticator, so I don't have a sense of where we're going to end up recession or not, or hard or not landing. But I do think from my perspective, it's something really to sort of focus on and has some real profound implications for our banking sector. And what do you think the bond market is telling us right now? Once you get a little bit of mix, I mean, you got an inverted yield. So I think that obviously has implications for bank investments in the small cap space, but that's kind of a typical sign of a potential recession. But at the same time, as you follow, and we follow the high yield market really closely, just because it has a very high R squared with the Russell 2000 value, the high yield market, really the spreads have not widened out. I mean, absolute yields have come up a lot, but the spreads in themselves haven't widened out and you really haven't sort of seen any credit blip, you know, and that sort of would be true you know, definitely in the high yield market. And we'll talk about the consumer later, but you're not seeing it in the consumer either. I mean, it's interesting that on the banking side, the credit quality too, and I will get into it with the commercial real estate loans, but just looking at 
uh, delinquencies in across the banking system are still exceptionally low, ticking up. The percentages are ticking up, but this gets back a little bit to the kind of, you know, where did we start and what's the change from a year ago that has everyone prognosticating a recession? But did we start from such a high point of activity, low point of delinquencies that maybe we skirt through with some kind of a soft landing? Clearly, that's yeah. the debate. Where we started from is phenomenal. I mean, really, you know, there's 6,000 banks in the country or kind of thereabouts. And you think about the number of average bank failures in a normal year, we went three or four years without a single bank failure, which is quite extraordinary. I know in the last time period, we had that sort of the streak of good luck, but it's really kind of amazing that you had that sort of long streak. David, we've heard a lot from companies about better profit margins just due to better cost discipline. But on the flip side, rising rates impacts free cash flow. How are you thinking about both of those within the companies and the portfolio that you manage? So first off, we have kind of a natural bias against highly levered companies, but because we've seen the phenomenon, even in a short period of time, where companies that have debt that's rolling, it's materially eating into their cash flows. There were a lot of ill-timed, ill-considered, I would say, in some cases, little strategic rationale transactions done to sort of up leverage in the small cap space. And we do see a lot of leverage kind of across the board in the small cap space. But that is an absolute factor. At the end of the day, the ability to repay your debt and ability to sort of delever as necessary is really important for a small cap company. Small cap companies, they just can't carry as much leverage as large cap companies. It's just a fact. We're asked a lot about small cap performance this year, which has vastly underperformed the broad large cap market. What do you think is driving that underperformance? I remember I started at the end of the year, uh, a lot of people were like, okay, finally, small caps are about to regain and the era of small caps is upon us. So I knew it was going to be a tough year for small caps just because people were ringing the bell a little bit early. But to their credit, I mean, you know, we'll talk about this later. The opportunity is these runs are long runs, you know, five, 10 years where and small caps can either be underperforming or outperforming. But, you know, I think the situation so far is really one, Sid sort of alluded to it, the twofold, you know, would be one. There are a lot of small banks and a lot of smaller companies that rely on those banks for funding. So I think about the funding and the liquidity issues that banks are facing. That certainly weighs on small cap investors' minds. And then also small caps typically are going to do better coming out of a recession, but are going to have just because of their size, you know, it's very similar. They're going to be more impacted by a potential recession. And what it feels like is people are pricing in a recession in small caps. So it's very similar to kind of what you're seeing in the inverted yield curve, but effectively, and maybe it wouldn't be so pronounced if you didn't have the euphoria over AI and some of the 2020 secular growth playbook that seems to be employed right now. But I do think that that's effectively what's going on in folks' minds is they're sort of thinking, okay, the chance of a recession is growing. Maybe we're already there. Maybe that's coming. Don't know. But either way, that's definitely, I think, what's weighing on people's minds. And that's what's driven the big disparity. So, David, we've talked about this in the past. You're never one to be overly zealous in terms of rating the opportunity set that you have in front of you. I think we joked you're usually somewhere between a four and a six out of 10 in terms of your excitement level. 
How do you think about the opportunities being presented? I mean, I'm sure you look at the large cap world and you see NVIDIA trading at 200 times earnings and broadly the FANG stocks trading at very high multiples. And you think that's not your cup of tea and you can find companies trading at 12, 13, 14 times earnings with low leverage and you can get excited. But how do you rank this opportunity set today versus past opportunity sets? Someone pointed out to me today, you can either own Apple or you can own the entire Russell 2000. (laughs) It is pretty stark. And, you know, the numbers would sort of suggest that small caps are really, really undervalued right now. I mean, some people look at sort of percentage of market cap as a way to sort of measure and historically small caps are sort of call it six or 7% of the equity markets here in the States. I think we're at like 3%. So really, really depressed valuations, if not on an absolute basis, definitely on a relative basis, certainly relative to large and definitely relative to the growth side. I would say the opportunity set is a mixed bag. I mean, if I had to own every single small cap company out there, I'm, I'm not sure I would be super, super excited just because smaller companies aren't going to be able to withstand inflationary pressures. And we've sort of seen that, that have a lot of leverage, a lot of under-earning companies. But, you know, kind of amidst all that, I would say our activity levels is pretty high. And so a lot of this volatility, you know, we like to sort of think gives us some opportunity. And so I would say our excitement level is if you had to gauge us on an absolute basis, we would be right there, probably about a five. And if you had to sort of say on a relative basis, you know, relative to other parts of the market, you know, definitely higher than that, just because we think that you know, the relative valuation and some of the valuations, you know, on the growth side are seems so, so high that there's a natural opportunity for us. At the end of the day, small caps, we're looking for cash flows and near term, those cash flows start immediately. So we think about that as the opportunity being, you know, in a higher rate environment. We spend a lot of time looking and thinking about cost of capital and weighted average cost of capital. And I think Erica, you made the comment earlier. It's like in this environment, those are both going up. Absolutely. And so all things being equal, that translates into higher values for near-term cash flows or real cash flows in the short term. I don't know if that answers the question, but we would say say that the relative opportunity we feel really excited about. Are you adding to financials here? We are not. Financials are a little bit unique here. Sort of step back. I think, you know, there was small financials have a bunch of different challenges. The first is within the financial space, deposits really sort of flowed to a lot of these smaller institutions. You saw a lot of those sort of flow out. I mean, you could probably, by our estimate and our analysts looking at, we think that there might be a trillion, maybe a trillion and a half dollars of deposits that still need to come out of the banking sector. So that's a significant amount of liquidity that still needs to come out. We talked about commercial real estate. I mean, we've been following a lot of the public REITs. And you see where I had a call this morning, someone declared that all the office buildings in Chicago are underwater. Kind of a bold statement, but clearly there's a lot of carnage in the real estate space. Small banks often are the biggest lenders in the real estate space. So it's hard to imagine that there's not challenges there. Valuations right now are really low, but not to get into the weeds, but at the beginning of 2020, there was a new accounting rule promulgated It's basically called Cecil. You'll hear that around, but basically it has to do with life of loan losses based on economic models. And so even though the valuations are inexpensive right now, if we were to have a recessionary environment sort of peak its head up, all of those losses will be brought, you know, basically hit the balance sheet immediately. And so 
even though we see a lot of banks at one time tangible book value, we think, you know, really once those losses get embedded, really, and that will happen over a short period of time, one or two quarters, the real valuations are probably one, three, one, four, one, five a book. We think that could be an interesting time to really increase the weightings. In the meantime, our strategy has always been to try to find banks with maybe you know, a little bit more unique business models. We have our largest bank right now is a company called Tickers TVBK. The company is called The Bank Corp. But basically, they're generating their deposits from stored value cards, HSAs, things like that, where there's really not a focus on the actual yield. And are really our only bank that I can really point to that's got a NIM north of 400 basis points. So there are some opportunities. This kind of gets back to sort of the size and the scope of the small cap space. But we've been underweight and are continuing to be underweight banks sort of waiting for, you know, a little bit more distress to get into the market. David, you know, I think we talked about this on our last call that small banks, about 25% of their assets are commercial real estate loans. You know, obviously office is one of those areas that people are very concerned about. If you think book values kind of aren't reflecting reality at this point, how do you think this plays out? Are many of these banks going to have to raise meaningfully more capital? Do you think there will be a wave of acquisitions, forced or otherwise? And maybe dusting off the baseball analogy, what inning are we in of realizing all of this? First off, I would say compared to 2007, bank capital levels are much higher. And I would say lending standards are much better. So the initial attachment points on these loans, you know, rather than doing it to 80% or 90% is 60% or 70%. Doesn't mean you still can't have losses. Doesn't mean still you're going to have issues. So are there going to be bank failures? Yeah. I mean, there will be bank failures, small bank failures. That would be expected. Is it going to be the same level where we saw in 08, hundreds of small banks go down in a short period of time? My guess is not. It probably is not going to be that systemic, but I do think that there will be. I think we're still early, if you want to know the truth, in terms of that playing out, just because, as we pointed out earlier, None of this is like showing up. I mean, we've scoured these so the last quarter and we found some individual one-off loan situations, but really nothing systemic that we could sort of point to in terms of delinquencies that would lead to NPAs and then finally into loans coming on bank balance sheets. But it will happen. It will just take some time. So I'd say we're still relatively early. I would say there's going to be an opportunity in terms of potentially raising some capital to put some money into banks at really low valuations. But for the moment, we think that's kind of a ways away. David, you've talked in the past about you know leaning into some of these areas where there is perceived stress. I think you've talked about a couple of other interesting companies, one that is focused on making loans within real estate and another a REIT sitting on a big stockpile of cash. You want to describe, you know, some of these kind of unique situations where you're looking to profit from the sure. uh, chaos. I think the two things, you know, obviously everyone's well aware of distress in real estate, and so you know, as we sort of thought, think through, what do we think may be some of the opportunities? And one, when we think about banks pulling back, the ability to find financing for real estate owners and buyers is more challenged. So we have an investment and. In, small company called Ladder. Basically, it's about a $1.2 billion company uh, sitting on a lot of liquidity. They had a big triple net lease portfolio that they sold a significant portion of over the last couple of years to raise liquidity. They have a little bit of leverage in the form of sort of some long-term funded debt at the parent. So we're hopeful that that will translate into a really sort of an outsized investment opportunity. Unfortunately, it just there isn't that much activity so far. I think in the fourth quarter, they did one new loan. 
And then the first quarter, they did one other loan. So I think, you know, there is a bid, bid ask spread between buyers and sellers in the market right now. You're just not seeing that much activity as some of the distressed situations sort of materialize as CMBS structures start to unwind. I think that will change. But for the moment, you know, they're earning an attractive return, but they're not earning sort of an outsized return so far. So that's sort of one cohort of investments. We've also gone through, you know, there's a lot of publicly traded real estate companies, so in the form of REITs, and we've done a lot of work on a lot of potential opportunities there. It's just really hard to get your head around, you know, A, capital markets risk, and B, you know, even if you can get some sort of sense of quality of the NOI, what the appropriate cap rate is. And so it's been really tough to sort of feel grounded in terms of valuation and some of the opportunities that we've looked at and I'm obviously saying we haven't executed on it. Uh, the one that we did find that we were really excited by is called Equity Commonwealth. Equity was a publicly traded company. It was externally managed, a group actually led by Sam Zell, took control of the business in sort of four or five years ago, ended up internalizing the management and basically have sold $6 billion of real estate. So shrunk the balance sheet. And now basically it's about a $2.3 billion market cap company, no debt. They do own six properties, unlevered. So that's throwing off a fair bit of NOI. So we think we're buying it effectively below NAV. And with this $2 billion of cash, obviously Sam Zell passed away sadly a couple of weeks ago, but his team that's been working with him over the last 25 years is in place and actively looking at opportunities. And so we're really excited about having that investment. And we think that's an interesting way to basically opportunistically try to take advantage of maybe some of the distress out there, but by literally having money with kind of the premier distressed real estate team in the business. David, you talked about challenges in capital markets and we've seen pretty massive declines in private investment activity. What's the M&A environment right now and how does that impact small cap investing? Yeah, right now it's low, a lot of activity and no big surprise. I mean, at the largest level, you got a pretty challenging regulatory environment. The capital markets, as you alluded to, making deals that much more expensive. And then at the end of the day, animal spirits are just pretty modest. You know, I think from small caps perspective, especially small cap M&A is a big driver, I think, in kind of the hidden secret of small cap investing, you know, any given year, there's typically anywhere from three to five to 7% of the Russell 2000 gets taken out in the form of some M&A transaction. We haven't seen really any deal activity this year. So that's somewhat of an anomaly. If it does come back in the capital markets, we think that's going to be a good thing. In the midst, we are sort of seeing a lot of more other corporate transactions. So spinoffs, split offs. I think management teams, particularly larger companies, really trying to sort of think through how to create value because, you know, particularly larger companies, M&A is an important growth driver for them in terms of their own revenue and operating performance. And so if they can't do that, that's sort of the next natural step. So I would say even at the small cap level, we've kind of been pushing and sort of having lots of discussions with some management teams about splitting off different divisions and breaking up companies or selling things in order to realize value. David, 
putting numbers to this, we're at, I think the lowest level of LBO transactions since 2009. You know, venture capital funding is down 75% this year. I think it might be fun for the audience to kind of hear as a former M&A banker walk through just, you know, what does the math look like on deals right now? If you're trying to buy a company and you used to be borrowing at the overnight rate was zero and you're paying, you know, 5% above that. And now you're paying 5% plus 6%. And for a typical LBO, if you're levering it four or five, six, seven times relative to EBITDA, what's going on right now, you think in the private equity world and I guess one of the things on my mind also is if public stocks are presenting better opportunity, could we actually end up seeing more kind of public to private buyouts if it takes longer to reset prices in private markets? Eric, I sort of referenced it earlier when she's talking about sort of free cash flow of these small cap companies. I mean, really, there's different when you're sort of constructing an LBO, you're looking at tapping different sources of capital to basically do the transaction. And at the senior level, you're sort of thinking about, okay, I'm taking maybe four or five years of cash flow to pay off my senior loan. And that sort of starts the equation. Well, you know, two years ago, and you saw this in terms of leverage levels, driving up valuations, uh, just because at low levels, you could borrow that much more at the senior level. And if that's a certain amount of cash flow, that leaves that much more you know, in terms of potential borrowing capacity on top of that. And I think you're sort of seeing the inverse happening here, where if you're doing a potential transaction, all of a sudden your funding costs go up really materially. The deal just doesn't work just because your lenders are going to need, you know, certainly the senior guys are going to need some certainty of repayment over a time period. And then, you know, depending on that, that's just a leap of faith for the next tier of capital down the stack. Some of that's translated into opportunity for us. We have an investment in a company called NCR. NCR is a, obviously, people see it when they buy their ATMs. This was an LBO that had a signed transaction ready to go uh, the middle of last year. They couldn't get the financing done and the deal fell apart. And we sort of used that as an opportunity as the shareholder transitioned out of merger arb into just more traditional investors. That kind of created the opportunity for us. Here they are. They're going to do exactly the same playbook. They're going to split the company up. They have one division. We think it's incredibly valuable. They're going to try to sell. But anyway, the point being is that transaction couldn't come together just because the costs of the capital markets had gone up so much. How does that sort of fix itself? Really sort of one of two ways. Either A, borrowing costs come down. I don't think anyone's predicting that. Or valuations for these deals needs to come down. And if someone really needs to sell, their ultimate valuation is going to be tighter than it was or inside of what it was a couple of years ago. That's just, it all factors into Erica's earlier comment around cost of capital and weighted average cost of capital as it translates into valuation. So David, we've talked about how pricing on equity for some of these deals needs to come down, but I know you and I've talked a lot about how if you can get a deal done right now at these rates, whether it's as a lender to real estate you know, at 8% or a mezzanine lender in real estate making 12 to 14% or a private lender making 10, 12%, the opportunities look decidedly a lot more interesting. What areas of credit for you as a personal investor, and just when you, when you look at the market, are, are kind of most appealing? You know, within real estate, I think the real estate opportunity, and I know our private client teams are looking and, and your team are looking and opportunities there. I know there's a lot of capital being formed on the sideline to take advantage of that opportunity, but I think that's a very deep opportunity 
that will be there for quite some time. So I think that is a very natural opportunity. You know, I think the other piece that also has a somewhat distressed element to it is, you know, Silicon and Signature Bank have backed away and referenced the venture capital funding backing away. You know, some of these guys doing venture debt, I think that is a really interesting area as well. You know, I'd be curious to see how pricing sort of manifests itself here over the next six or 12 months. But I have to believe that there are really good small companies that have growth opportunities and or liquidity needs where you can step in as a capital provider and earn an appropriate risk-adjusted return in those kinds of situations. I think it's still early for pure distressed. I have a bunch of friends that do distressed and distressed is a very cyclical thing. It's very odd being invested in a distressed fund, you know, going into a recession, you kind of sort of see it, you get the marks going down, you get the opportunity on the way back. It seems like you really want to be time your, your distressed investments, you know, when things are really, really feeling really, really ugly. There haven't really been a lot of those types of situations over the last decade and they've kind of come and gone really fast. But I kind of feel like that's also an opportunity, maybe a little bit one where you want to take your time. David, it would be hard to have a conversation without talking about the consumer. And there's a lot of mixed viewpoints out there this earnings season. We heard Wells Fargo mention weakening consumer health trends. And then Procter & Gamble came out and said that the U.S. consumer is actually holding up pretty well. What are you seeing as far as the state of the consumer? Yeah. I would say also a lot of sort of mixed signals are getting communicated. I mean, when we, just this last earnings season, we saw a lot of stamps or sale declines. And when people look at those, you have to remember those are in uh, nominal terms. So if you look at them really on an inflation adjusted return, those are actually really quite magnified. So, you know, in terms of individual units, it's actually magnified. I would say, you know, one of the questions that we sort of debate is, you know, is that just pockets of liquidity that's drying up or is it just so much demand that got pulled forward? But it feels like different pockets of the consumer are tough. I mean, at the high end, that doesn't feel like that consumer is really under a lot of stress. Ironically, at the sort of the skilled labor, more modest income levels, feels like the job market is still sort of holding strong. I mean, we have just in terms of some conversations with friends that run private companies in the Midwest for skilled labor, still having a really hard time finding a skilled labor and, you know, the notion of there's going to be layoffs. So I would say that cohort seems to be doing well. Ironically, it's probably sort of the middle class or maybe the upper middle that's probably the most challenged, maybe feeling the biggest pinch in terms of some of the inflationary impact, but it's going to be really hard to tell. The interesting thing is there is definitely a lot of bearish sentiment around the consumer. From our perspective, that sort of created some opportunities. We just made an investment at the beginning of this year, and Signet actually is the largest wedding and jeweler, and they've done a nice job of sort of buying a bunch of online platforms. It's really combining that. Here's a business, about a $2 billion company, sitting on significant amount of cash, but still generating three to $400 million of cash a year, trading at three times EBITDA. So there's a lot of bearishness, but it kind of creates some really interesting investment opportunities for us. David, there's been two pieces of funding legislation that's been passed over the past couple of years, the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Combined, that's more than $1.7 trillion in funding over the next several years. 
And it's estimated that the administration has announced nearly $200 billion in funding or 20,000 projects or awards in all 50 states. Does this apply to small cap? In some cases, absolutely. What we've done, if you thought about the banks and the implications for underweight banks, but we've also underweighted uh, and sold investments that we thought maybe related to pure commercial construction. But interestingly enough, you know, the infrastructure bill is going to drive a lot of other types of larger construction, highway and infrastructure projects. One of our largest investments is a company called Eagle Materials. Incredibly difficult to build a cement plant in this country. So Eagle is in the Midwest and Texas is really sort of a dominant player in its market. They are operating and have been operating literally at 100% capacity. And we haven't even hit spending from the infrastructure bill. And literally, so you know, you think about the amount of tonnage that's going through. In January, they just passed on another 16% price increase. Then they'll probably do another mid-year price increase. And so in pockets of the economy, that can really have a profound impact, you know, just on the operating performance of these companies. So it's something we absolutely pay attention to. Uh, we have a couple of companies beyond Eagle that we think are going to be real beneficiaries you know, generally dealing more on the municipal side as compared to sort of raw materials, but, you know, certainly in that same vein of an enormous amount of funding that's going to be coming down the pipeline. It seems like it's old news, but the money is really just starting to flow right now. Well, David, you talked about a number of individual investments. At the end of these calls, we like to kind of go around the horn and talk about what are the opportunities that are most exciting to us. Maybe they've already been mentioned, but for you, what's most exciting in today's investment environment? Look, as a small cap manager, the small cap space is wide and diverse and all this volatility and pessimism and the differing views in my mind just sort of creates investment opportunities for our, our clients. So that's probably the thing that makes me most excited. Certainly not ready to make a big call on a small cap transition, but certainly individual companies, um, when we go through the portfolio, we're really, really excited about their prospects. Erica, what about you? This is a really challenging investing environment, and it's been very challenging from a portfolio performance standpoint, and the risk-reward in equities is not as attractive here, and we still don't know the Fed's path to target inflation. And I mentioned earlier, there's a wide range of outcomes. You know, first of all, the front end of the curve is pricing in another rate hike. The six-month T-bill is now yielding more than 5%. This is the part of the curve that tends to be much more sensitive. However, you know, for now, we continue to like the attractiveness of shorter term maturities. We continue to be cautious on credit in the near term. And then just going back to the narrowness of the market, there is an increasing opportunity set this year from an asset class standpoint versus last year. And you know, we talked a little bit about this, but the risk reward and attractiveness of U.S. small cap is starting to be evident. The earnings revisions are possibly already accounting for a recession. And the risk reward in international equities is also becoming more favorable. Sid, what about you? I think I agree very much with both of what you just said, which is I think when you get to periods of time where market leadership is so incredibly narrow, and we are at levels now that we haven't seen since you know March of 2020 and January of 2021. These were periods after which we saw some pretty material outperformance of kind of active management strategies. You know, when there's just a few stocks kind of leading the way and big chunks bringing up the rear, 
it's usually a great time to be sifting through all the different opportunities and setting yourself up for good performance. So I'm very positive just on the kind of opportunity set for active managers, particularly Eric, as you mentioned, in some of these areas like small cap, which just on a top-down level look cheaper. I think I am starting to get more excited about the distressed opportunity set. David, I acknowledge it's really hard to time these things. I mean, I think so much of what we do in distressed is allocate to vehicles that are going to call capital when the opportunities come, and we have to kind of rely on their discipline in calling that capital at the right time and not doing it too early and getting too excited before the real opportunities come. But it you know, does certainly appear to me like the opportunities in credit-related investments are getting more interesting relative to the opportunities in equities because valuations in equities on a very high level are less attractive relative to fixed income yield. So, but Eric, I totally agree with you that it's really hard right now when you're being paid over 5% in short-term T-bills to be kind of overly aggressive. It feels like for the first time in a very long time, we're kind of being paid to be a bit conservative and to wait and maybe allocate to some of these drawdown vehicles that'll take advantage when the opportunities present themselves. I think also the opportunities outside the US, we've been talking about multi-decade long periods where one particular factor dominates. I mean, we've been well over a decade now of the US dominating and that's left markets outside the US looking a bit cheap. So I think it's one of these times where for both the market and the currency, you want to be a bit more diversified outside the US. So with that, thank you, David, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We hope to have you back again. A great conversation. And please, everyone, give a follow, give a listen to these podcasts going forward. And Erica, thanks as always. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, David. Thanks, David.